0: Hello everyone, you're listening to the Embrace ASD podcast. I'm your host, Matt, and in this episode we speak with Aaron Orsini. Aaron is the author of Autism on Acid, an autobiography in which Aaron details how LSD allowed him to better understand others and himself, as well as recognize feelings he previously blocked out. Aaron is also the organizer and a co-host of the Autistic Psychedelic Community with Justine Lee, which meets every Sunday at 11am pacific time. Please welcome... Aaron Orsini. All right, everyone. So we've got our next guest, Aaron Orsini. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly.
1: Yeah, Orsini, that's right.
0: Yep. And he wrote the book, Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions. And uh, welcome. Welcome, Aaron.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And I've uh, been uh, following your guys' content for a while as well, and I appreciate the work you guys do. So it's great to be here. Yeah,
0: Yeah. absolutely. And so uh, first and foremost, we'll jump right into how you were diagnosed. Um, Your story is pretty similar to most of ours, frankly. Uh, being most of ours who work in Embrace. And yeah. Um, yeah, so walk me through what was that like? How did you handle it when you were diagnosed? What were your feelings?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's cool being here because, uh, you know, most of the appearances I've made, I kind of have to walk people up to some of the understandings of some of the autistic sides of my story. I think I found myself more often in like the psychedelic communities or or otherwise. So this is kind of my first kind of step into this, like more so like the autistic specific communities. So I think I can be.
0: Yeah, welcome to the twilight zone.
1: No, it's one. It's wonderful though, because I think I can kind of speak with a certain familiarity that that uh that I think will be good to explore here. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, in in response to your question there, uh, you know, I was diagnosed at twenty three. Um, that was a number of years after I was pursuing various forms of mental health care already. Um, you know, you kind of, I mean, you could just like kind of point at any page on the DSM and I sort of like stepped into some symptomatic behaviors under the like broader umbrella of like kind of concurrent or comorbid conditions, um, in terms, in terms of like anxiety or just generalized like depression, social difficulties, um, you know, like a lot of autistic people, I, I definitely figured out the sort of like hack arounds and like ways to make it work, whether that's like masking or, uh you know just like reliance upon like learned routines things like this um and i didn't necessarily like uh seek out an autistic diagnosis the the psychiatrist that i was seeing is an increasingly rare blend of a psychiatrist who also uh, did talk therapy so we were in the midst of doing like an anti-anxiety medication regimen at that point randy handed me a questionnaire uh didn't really even give me context about what the questionnaire necessarily was Um. And I like filled it out. And like in that same session, he was like, cool, here's the results. And here's what, you know, kind of confirms what he had already kind of like believed based on our talk sessions. Um And he was like, cool. Yeah. You, so you're like on the spectrum here. And let's kind of move forward with that. He gave me some like book recommendations and some things to check out. And, you know, I think as I've, you know, right now I'm, I'm 32 uh, years old. So just about a decade later, you know, I've, I've heard so many stories, read so many stories of people going through similar and, you know, anyone's kind of memoir biography becomes pretty resonant from there as far as just being like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. This makes a ton of sense. Wow. This is so consistent with this. Like, wow. Uh, you know, all those things started to kind of unfold. Um, I was still at a difficult place. Like, you know, knowing, uh, you know, knowing about that sort of otherness was helpful. It gave me like a roadmap. map. Uh, But at that point at age 23, I hadn't really like walked that roadmap just yet. Um, So it's interesting looking back like almost a decade later at that point um, and just, you know, seeing how much has kind of changed over the time.
0: Absolutely. And so what were your initial thoughts post-diagnosis, you know, when you got the definitive news, did you, you know, phone everyone and say, oh my God, look look at what I've discovered about myself or was it more, you know, somber?
1: No, I mean, I mean, no, dude, first of all, I'm not sure how many people I had to even phone at that point. Like, (laughs) I was, I was in a pretty like a dark valley of time, you know, I mean, like I had, I had like a nine to five, I was still like, I was in social settings to a point, like I might be like, maybe like in like a bar setting or something kind of like, it's almost like I was like, isolate, I was like isolated via like alcohol or whatever it might be like I was, there's different ways that I was still like, putting on my like hazmat suit to overcome my like sensitivities and going out there and doing things. But definitely at that point, like I only thought that being, I mean, the third word in the diagnosis is disorder. So I was like, I'm disorderly. And that was like, that was my, that was absolutely like overshadowed any thought that I had. Like there's so many, there's a lot of positive spins for sure. And I'm trying to become yet another uh of those sort of like you know voices and advocates for you know like similar to what you guys are doing in terms of like look at all these strengths that like look at all these peaks amongst all these valleys but initially i was just like you know the fact that i was at a doctor's office trying to work on something i wasn't there because i wanted him to like enhance my strengths like i was trying to save myself from like my my difficulties you know Um, absolutely so yeah i mean i i talked about it with like my parents at first because there was a difficulty i had to learn so much about it because when i would talk to like my peers they'd be like that's not true (laughs) they'd be like they'd be like no they're like don't let that diagnosis get you down like you're fine you're normal like we don't see that at all and i was like no but like i see that like get with me on this like but no one like i couldn't find a really a safe space maybe i like wasn't really living that much on the internet just yet or maybe like I don't know, there's just a lot of different things as to why like 10 years ago, there wasn't everything there is now. Um, And and so it was like, it was a mixed bag. Maybe I went through like all seven phases of grieving all at once or something. Like it was kind of complicated.
0: Actually really interesting. You brought up the stages of grief because uh, actually the first guest, Reese Finley, he also likened the experience of learning about his autism as a series you know through the grief cycle and uh, I, I find that interesting that it's a parallel yeah. i never made myself but you two seem to be kind of on the same trajectory in your thinking
1: oh absolutely i mean it's in no way like you know different i, I see it as like a dying of an old self or at least like an old self-perception um that's like, interesting
0: what an entheogenic thing to say <laughs> Yeah,
1: as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're all, all of this stuff, you know, part of what's fascinating about everything that I've been living through this last decade is that like, I'm like, I'm, I've been studying all of the different states of altered perception. And that's whether that's induced because you like didn't get enough sleep that day, or you ate too much food that afternoon, or you like took like a psychedelic substance, or you simply like were born with like a neurological predisposition, like just the way in which I've come to understand. And I mean, I, like, and multiply that by this sort of autistic tendency, you know, like autism sort of meaning like self-isolated and its perception, like multiply that by being like, wow, there's other perspectives like that, like all of that, like all at once kind of created this sort of like, I don't know, I was like an adult infant at 23 is what it felt like. And then like this, you know, this diagnosis kind of kick started. exploration of like okay what does it mean to be me not just like how does what is it like to survive being me i started to kind of go into self-study at that point already at like 23 i mean and it was like by necessity like i needed to sort of write my own like instruction manual for like operating myself almost and so i did like (laughs) to a large extent
0: yeah i mean literally you you actually and literally wrote the book (laughs)
1: I mean yeah I mean and that came much later I mean that was on the other side of like the psychedelic experiences and stuff but you know that age that age like 23 to 26 27 that was like that was me going through those like stages of grief like over and over in rapidity um, and truly not really arriving to any I might have touched on acceptance for a second but it was like a band-aid it was like a false hope that like it was keeping me from looking at the downside for just a moment but it wasn't like full-out acceptance in the initial years, and I no one in my immediate support network was really prepared or educated enough to to be really participate either. It's just like it's a massively complicated topic.
0: yeah, like, and it sounds like you had a sort of double whammy because you know, you had depressive episodes on top of maybe naturally occurring cognitive rigidity as a result of, you know, your autism. So that together, I imagine, is just not a healthy combination, you know?
1: Yeah. And like to that same end, after enough years, though, it becomes very obvious how like those blocks kind of stack on top of one another and add up to all of like, you know, one one fear of one kind of behavior pushes the pursuit of another behavior, which like to at a certain point, I began to see more of those feedback loops of like, what kinds of loops was I getting trapped in? And like, where do those originate from and once i started to see some of the neurological roots it became a lot easier not necessarily because you know i could necessarily change them fully but i could at least be like oh like i don't know it was like a it was like a moment of having like you know like a television show where they like pan out and then they go like behind the camera for a second and you're like oh there was a camera there oh, that's how this TV show works. Okay, cool. Like there's like that sort of moment came up for me, not only through just direct education and reading, but also simultaneously through my psychedelic experiences. Like I got uh, a sort of like a third person perspective on my first person perceptions.
0: Yeah, you you wrote about that. Um, sort of, you could switch out. I love the way you term this, your neurological contact lenses. And I just think that's such an apt description. Because uh, I've noticed it feels like that when I mask, you know, you could say switching hats. But to me, it really does feel like you have to adopt an entirely different vantage point. Yeah. Just, to, you know, really navigate. Yeah. no. Tell us about how you came up with that idea, you know, that metaphor. Well, you
1: know, I think it, it really tries to reach towards how foundational um, these shifts are. Like, they border on how foundational uh, some of these, like, neurological predispositions seem to be, you know, like, uh, there's there's some degree of research, and, and I'm going to really tread lightly on anything science because I'm straight up not certified in any field of science other than my own independent research, um, but there's, like, aspects of ASD that are believed to have some root in some, like, anatomical, like, uh, functionalities and things like this, and, like... You know that's so foundational it's like you know if you have a you know a photo camera it's like we're starting to talk about like not only like the lens that's on the camera but also like you know what's like the what's the light sensor inside of the camera equipped to take you know like you can open the aperture as widely as you can but how much is like the light sensor going to absorb inside the camera like and as you play with those two variables like, you're going to get different, like, images that form on, like, the end result of, like, the process. And so I started to see, like, my autism in the same way that it was almost like, uh, a, again, using this camera metaphor, it was like, um, in, like, a, you know, without psychedelics introduced, it seemed like my mind was, like, kind of stuck on this, like, automatic, like, camera capture mode. And I'm speaking as though this is a familiar metaphor. Maybe people out there don't know cameras quite so well, but... Like, if you're shooting with, like, an automatic camera, like, you can't, like, it'll take, at a, as in a general sense, it'll take, like, pretty decent photos, but if you're trying to do something very, very particular, like, I don't know, shoot at, like, a very close range, or, like, I don't know, try to notice something in a very, like, very, very bright environment, like, manual setting is going to be able to get you there a lot better if you're trying to find, like, one detail, like, but automatic is good at kind of like taking all that noise and kind of like collapsing it into something simpler. And so like I started to see kind of psychedelic states in a similar capacity that like psychedelic states allowed me to kind of enter into more of like a manual control operation where I was like, you know, there was definitely still some function that was like still mm. a little bit like kind of like riding a wave of sorts, but there was also this abundance of information that seemed to be available as soon as like the shutter stopped like automatically closing in the face of uh this stimulus or that stimulus like that sort of automatic like perception change that might happen in like a normal kind of sober state it seemed to be like lifted in psychedelic states to where it was like weird my brain didn't filter that one thing out that it always filters out weird that's that set of stimulus is just there like that's super weird but like it was also super familiar in those moments too so that was like is jarring is and that's where, you know, I think I, I draw the parallel in the book too. like if the contact lenses analogy kind of talks to like that sort of foundational nature of it. You can also kind of adopt that sort of like there's those in chroma colorblind glasses that people put on and the way that those work is they actually like filter out like frequency ranges of color. So they're not adding color to the person wearing the lenses. They're actually like cutting out slices of the frequency spectrum of color so that the user can differentiate more colors. like So it's like a way of like tricking the mind into being able to like parse information better. Um, and so I think that that's kind of an apt analogy as well. Like, uh, you know, and you know, this, I could talk in response to this question, I could talk forever and that's also why I wrote the book. So I'll like t- take a pause because I'm trying to like cram the whole book and I like get that feeling right now. So I'll take pause and just kind of like open up to another question.
2: I'm wondering how conducive autism actually was, like this intersection between the autistic experience and the psychedelic experience, because research also shows that due to our higher systemizing ability, we actually have more social insight often. I guess also because we are often confronted with social situations where things are not very intuitive. Um, But along the way, we internalize so many experiences and uh, amass so much knowledge, I, I think. What is your experience with it?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, in that same sort of way, like, you know, up until I sort of entered this sort of psychedelic exploration, I would say I was very analytical, rationally minded in a general sense. And I wouldn't say that that's like you know, these things are never so black and white as they might sound and like language just happens like linear, so that's just how it is. But like, that was my dominant kind of way of processing. But I think that that was adaptive, not only because, you know, I was like skilled in that domain, but also because there were times in which like, I I think, you know, I've come to see this sort of like emotional sensitivity component of my story, this sort of relationship with a condition that's called alexithymia, uh that that it seems to be like an overloading of that emotional process that seems to be my Mm -hmm. uh, again like uh, and this is where i invite like people of much greater expertise than myself but from a subjective standpoint like there seems to be like an overwhelming nature to some of that emotional experience to where like rationality steps in almost to like prevent the system from overloading like that like a rationalization like steps in in the face of like a very intense emotional experience so there was like those two things in interplay as well so like in terms of being prepared for navigating it i mean it definitely helped me with the sort of analytical rational side of kind of like developing process and protocol and you know methodologies within the space of like psychedelics and my own like regimens and things and it i don't know in some ways a lot of my story also ended up kind of being a way to kind of speak to like neurotypicals or whatever language we choose to adopt and almost kind of like see help them see themselves in a new light by virtue of seeing from another vantage point as well like there's there's a sort of uh unavoidable exchange of perspective that comes uh, when someone who's kind of like trapped in the observation bubble talks to someone who's like naturally dwelling outside of it, like they have knowledges to share and impart upon one another naturally, just from like existing in different spaces like that.
0: Yeah. And um, I think a really important point to touch on is um, I noticed that there was a tweet. I don't mean to put you on blast here, but I really do think it's an important no. topic to discuss. Uh, tweet in recent History where you saw an article of ours and um, attributed the alexithymia as a symptom of autism, but a lot of the research out there in non not just non clinical populations, but people with traumatic brain injuries, people with naturally occurring ADHD, people schizophrenic, people who have chronic depression, they also see higher levels of alexithymia and report much of the same phenomenon and also report far-reduced social interaction and difficulty with empathy, expression, and pretty much all that goes with it. And so rather than it necessarily being a symptom of autism, was it perhaps that it's something that maybe haven't been informed by your autism such that society doesn't necessarily view us in the nicest terms? And if you face a lot of rejection or you know a lot of traumatic experience in one way or another, do you feel like that had any impact? I mean, revisiting your childhood, is, is there anything you think you can point to or yeah. things you can point to that may have uh, an explanation for that? I mean, I guess to cite this study. I mean, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. We're talking 10% of the non clinical population with alexithymic traits. And another study titled, um, Alexithymia Not Autism is Associated with Impaired Interception, published in 2016. Um, in the journal Cortex, um, they found that actually, as a variable, alexithymia predicted uh, it predicted social issues far more than autism in itself. And so other groups see this too, including neurotypicals. So it begs the question which causes what or what informs this or that. So yeah, I'll let you answer.
1: Yeah. I mean, and again, we're starting to we're starting to go almost beyond scientific into like philosophical at a certain level. And I, I see it as in terms of my personal subjective experience, most especially as a youth, I would say that it's 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 all Every, every word I could use would require so much clarification, but I'll just I'll jump right in and then I'll, I'll just accept that there's going to be a loss in translation here. But
0: oh, yeah, take us for a ride.
1: <laughs> but there's like there, there's an aspect, I think, uh, uh, like there's a subtle trauma that's inherent, I think, in any youthful environment, even like the most if you grew up like in a pile of like people hugging all of the time with like berries everywhere, like there is still a, an inherent uncertainty of just you weren't like you were just you were born you are young things are new things are challenging uh you know like one behavior that was rewarded one way is suddenly not and it creates a distrust like i i've, I've sort of seen myself and again I, I try to speak about my own experiences as best i can but I see that as there's like an analogy in the book of a sort of like self-learning Roomba robot, like vacuum cleaner of like, of like, oops, I hit this couch leg. Oh, that's a couch leg. Oops, I hit this. Like, but in my case, like I kept seeming to hit more couch legs and not learning necessarily best routes as quickly. And I think that was sort of like, where that sort of social blindness started to seem to be reinforced as I looked backwards. There was a certain like clumsiness there, like the camera on my Roomba was not as strong or like as well illuminated or something in the processing loop seemed to be just slower. Like there's a a portion in the book where I talk about like just someone kind of coming up and being like, it's raining outside. And you know, just kind of almost walking through from the inside of my mind what it's like to process someone saying, "Oh, it's raining outside." because like even though it seems like a very simple task to someone on some other kind of like neurological predisposition side of the of the fence, it's like in those instances, I have to do a lot of like what I kind of refer to as like manual calculation almost to kind of arrive at that interpretation. And I think that's a pretty common commonly told story amongst autistics like you know if they're talking one-on-one with someone they can run the math a little faster if they're talking with like 10 people and they're trying to run the math but someone else over there is talking and then there's like a noise in the background and like you know the more the more information that's on like the block table the harder it is to like intelligently build like one kind of solution at a time Uh, and that was where you know I still found myself in social settings, like I would absolutely still like go and just like dance in a giant group of people like I would, that is like, I would feel absolutely at home in that kind of setting. Like, it's not about like avoiding people, it was about avoiding certain subsets of like, perceptual challenge, like social challenge, intellectual challenge, like emotional empathetic challenge, like there were certain certain tasks that i wasn't as quick at doing in the same way that i was like excellent at geometry i wasn't as excellent at uh, i don't know local politics or something i <laughs> like i like i don't know like it was just different like i just had different intelligences
0: that's a shame i mean yeah i wanted to vote aaron hold out you never know <laughs> <laughs> and martin you have a really cool story uh oh, maybe cool is the wrong adjective here but definitely interesting story um you don't mind sharing uh, that story of you and the
2: tree that decided to fling you off of it. Um, Yeah, I can share that story, but to what end?
0: Uh, Well, just dealing with alexithymia and just kind of a before-after
2: picture. Do you think it relates to that?
0: Potentially, I don't know. Uh, You tell me.
2: Well, sure. So at, at high school, I liked that the school was next to a forest. And during the breaks, we would often head into the forest and throw around sticks and do whatever. And one day we landed upon this uh, tree that had fallen and it had this bent in the, um, in the middle. And we found that by applying pressure to one end of the tree, the other end would lift and we could lift each other. And it was kind of fun. And then it was my turn. And apparently, I don't remember saying this. But I said, uh, higher, 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 and like three people put their full weight on a tree at once, and they basically catapulted me out of the tree. And um, there are different accounts of what actually happened, whether I hit my head onto a tree at first and then landed on the ground or landed on the ground, uh, because the the accounts were um, traumatic experiences of my friends and other classmates, and because... In my recollection i I, I tried um uh, standing up and i couldn't uh, I felt just very sleepy and i just I just went to sleep right there and uh, ambulance was called, and I went to the hospital and uh, experienced some brain injury now, according to my mother, my personality changed since then um i don't haven't experienced any change in my personality. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if I necessarily would, but in my recollection it just coincides with my um, uh, with the hormones as well. Like I was 13, so I don't know.
0: Absolutely, and I, I wanted to bring it up because traumatic brain injury has a high correlation with alexithymia, and I mean just so many things. Just altered thinking patterns across the board. I mean. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I, I have wondered if I might have different types of elixithymia on account of that, because yes, brain injury is one of the types. One of the more prominent types is the primary one in autism, which is conduced by trauma very early on. Now, I, I do wonder what, what constitutes trauma here because it's so common. 40 to 75% of autistic people have alexithymia, which might beg the question if there is a genetic component to it that is common to schizophrenia and all these other conditions as well. Or is it due to the social component?
0: Yeah. And and perhaps one may inform the other where, you know, maybe it's a predisposition that manifests uh, due to environmental stimuli or whatever you want to call it. And, again, just to clarify, the jury's still out on this question. There's a lot more research that needs to be done. Yeah.
1: And, and and I think if I could interject, I sort of, I sort of see a parallel there with, you know, if we're kind of going with, and this is very oversimplified, but if there's kind of this sort of the, the notion of this, you know, hyperconnected local network, like if we are kind of to adopt like that an autistic individual might be, you know, if the sensitivity of their microphone is just naturally higher for certain sets of stimulus, like, I don't know, like if you if you were prone to feeling like very like guttural pain in the face of like uh, repetitive, like loud noise, like you might not become like a fan of like heavy metal music or something. If that's the case, like, you know, if that same person who might not become that fan of heavy metal music, if they're exposed to like a lullaby, but they're so sensitive that that lullaby even is like triggering some like defense system like to kind of know kind of shut shut itself down to protect like the person like experiencing that kind of sensation I feel like that's sort of like a metaphorical way that I look at you know the various ways that I have these intense sensitivity levels of certain sets of stimulus and how that might have informed like maybe a lower threshold for trauma to be experienced because of that high sensitivity uh, kind of being in place like I don't know, like you could probably find a difference between like pain thresholds across like subsets of groups or, you know, a, a number of things that might be like genetically predisposed across genders or a, any number of things.
2: Now, I, I don't know about you, but I was incredibly shy as a child. Um I wanted to sing along with my radio, but I was even too shy to sing with my parents. So I would hide behind the curtain and like whisper into the microphone so that sensitivity can be seen early on and because of that i I don't think i would have explored social situations as readily as other children would have
1: yeah and i think that that also hits on something that i came across in some of my years uh with psychedelics which was they served not only as a contact lens but also as that sort of uh like a hazmat suit basically for going out into those social situations like for reasons yet to be fully understood, it seemed like, you know, in some ways I experienced an abundance of more information, but in other ways, the sort of reception of that abundance of information was like a gentler process. Like it was like, instead of it being like a fire hose, it was like an ocean presented to me to like look at, like, it's like, it was still the same amount of water being like presented, right. but it was just like a different, like, like rate of like being introduced to me. And I was like, oh, okay, I can like calmly look at this ocean and like interpret its meaning like versus that like fire hose that's like normally just like, ah, oh, I'm going to go now. Like, it's just like, it's just so intense, but it's the same amount. Of, it's just how is it like being processed? Like in what, I don't know. It's like, there's like a bandwidth kind of fluctuation there or something.
0: Yeah. And, uh, actually you said something that, oh, both of you have said things that resonate deeply with my own experience. Um. As a kid, it was a mixed bag. When I was younger, I was told at like three, four years old, I was really outgoing and I would just do silly things all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of tapered off. I became more shy, but as uh, I was, I was never shy around my friends. Though. People I felt close to, I was always ridiculous and just doing silly things to entertain people. So always thought I was fun. And. Um, It wasn't until third grade where my parents got a divorce and I needed some way to get attention that I I became a class clown of sorts. And then that actually helped me really get over any kind of shyness. I wasn't shy from Mm -hmm. that day when I was nine until now. You know, I'll be shy in some instances like everyone else in the world who feels a little shy sometimes, but I'm not really scared to talk to strangers in any capacity. So I am an unusual, perhaps unusual autistic person in that regard but uh, in the music thing I remember so I come from a Latin uh, ethnic background and so my Dominican half of the family would play bachata you know blasting loud I mean even for neurotypicals it's just loud music it's just part of the culture and uh, I remember hating that I'd always cower in rooms and they'd want to bring me out and they thought it was because I was shy but it was just because the music was so dang loud I just didn't want to be around that And um, like Aaron said, with heavy metal, just replace that with barchata and other Latin styles of music. And as a kid, I just really hated it, you know, growing up, hated that genre, not even that genre, but any genre associated with it. And I imagine, you know, it may have been a uh, trauma response because the noise to me caused physical pain. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Yeah, and I've also, a, another thing that I've learned along these last, like, year or so of kind of, kind of talking with other autistics who've reached out to me was, uh, you know, I sort of, I began from this place of seeing, like, psychedelics as being, like, a means of, like, synesthetically connecting certain processing centers. Like, there's the classical version of, like, people seeing, like, seeing rhythmic sound appear as, like, shifting imagery or things like this. Um, but I also came across an individual autistic who explained to me that part of her difficulty was rooted in, uh, uh, like an uncontrollable synesthesia that was naturally occurring within her that like made it very debilitating similarly, like that, that tethering, because again, it's like, for me, it's not even necessarily a preference. Like if I go into like, I can go to a heavy metal show, like I can go there. I just can't like go to a heavy metal show and also do my taxes.
0: I don't think you're alone there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, but but I guess I just mean like there's a certain where it's like physically overwhelming, like it just it it's so dominant in my field of perception in like a sober state that like it's just physically overwhelming. So like I like I like I said, I've spoken with other individuals who they're like, yeah, my synesthesia made it like you know that any subtle sound was was taking the the forefront of my awareness to where like there was just that that was their form of like debilitation and fatigue. Uh, that was like their source of meltdown was like that sort of predisposition.
0: That's such a cool perspective. I've never, I've never heard that perspective because like you, you know, we've always heard the synesthetic effects and I mean, largely, you know, most people are going to fall into a neurotypical or other neurotype category, just statistically. So it would make sense that, you know, we'd hear that, you know, I guess that take on things, but that's so incredible how it muted synesthesia and That particular person. I wonder how many other people, you know, I I wonder what the variable or the variability in, in perceptive responses are while on you know these compounds
1: yeah and I that's really getting it, and part of the reason why I don't have uh like you know a, a wealth of information is because like collectively we don't have a, the greatest like amounts there's actually a, from from the years of research I've learned there is actually a very large abundance of like above board research with psychedelics like not only before prohibition but also within like the last two decades there's been a great resurgence in terms of like like medical imaging and things that are really starting to get at that. But there's, with the story that's starting to form, and again, like, I'm not a neuroscientist, like, there's plenty of, like, referrals that we could make out to people that are studying these things and, like, links to studies and stuff. Um, But there's this, like, there's a kind of more difficult to understand terrain wherein the like the brain has just so many different components moving some of those areas are down regulating some of them are up regulating and like the overall impact of all of those fluctuations is resulting in something and that's where it was interesting to me to find out about that individual who like was like yeah my my problematic synesthesia went away when my experience with psychedelics was like I gained a ability like in my case it was like someone verbally talking and I could hear the tonality a little better I could like kind of tether this like this like vibrational sensitivity with like conceptual meaning a little bit better and and so like it was like weird how do we meet in the middle like how did the brain just kind of like zero out somehow or like what's really happening in the middle of all of that um and, and it's just there's so many you know there's theorized systems dedicated to just language processing there's theorized systems dedicated to just sound processing and like there's theor- like there's so many layers to get at like we're yeah. we're talking about like what is like consciousness at a certain point like it starts to get like so 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 complicated but that's also why i think that this subject uh, that i've been looking at can also have a great deal of relevance cuz we're looking at you know two like autism and psychedelics are both very like uh, intense variations on a seemingly central point of like perception, and like looking at those kinds of push pulls and what levers and mechanisms of actions are happening. I think can be you know, like, like there was uh you know when when serotonin was kind of like discovered within like uh the medical community, it was discovered because of the ability to introduce. Uh, like other medicines that would basically block the effects uh, of other medicines. So basically like creating like a like being able to isolate those systems by virtue of, well, in a normal setting, this serotonergic agonist would do this subjective effect. When we introduce this antagonist, like that effect doesn't show, oh, that system that's being hit, like must have something to do with this functioning. And like, if we start to overlap those within like the autistic space as well, from like an internal medical imaging perspective, I think it really opens us up to being able to see like where those levers are being pulled up or down and where like the baseline was not only within the individual, but within that individual, their autistic population and then cross compared to that neurotypical population. It like adds one more point of triangulation that we can arrive to some more like, Uh, concrete understanding of what's going on there.
0: What's wild to me is just serotonin is so prevalent in so many life forms. I mean, not just mammals, so many animals and perhaps other creatures we don't know about uh, have serotonin as a neurotransmitter. And it's so wild to me that we are so naive about its function when it's so ubiquitous. And it just really shows how much work really does need to be done. I think it's really exciting because these compounds seem like such a unique opportunity to look into just what this you know what this neurotransmitter can do and what it's for and you know what happens when you tweak the system a bit yeah
1: very very much so yeah i mean again that contact lens analogy it's like even though it's internal like these 5ht2a receptors are showing a high degree of affinity for psychedelics and also a high degree of influence on a number of like social and cognitive functions uh and so as we look at those overlaps, we get closer and closer to, to understanding. And and, and 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 I'm like, and I'm one of like, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at it, I've read about it, I've spent a lot of time researching, but there's very, very, you know, like beyond, like fully like PhD researchers out in the world that are very much looking at these things with a degree of seriousness. And I think for the average person, you know who's like not aware of anything in this space of psychedelic science like that might seem far out there but like like it's no like no joke it's like in the you know there's hundreds of studies like with these materials like Mm -hmm. not with specifically with autistic individuals generally they're with healthy normals and that's just the nature of like the funding for research and like the first steps in a very difficult and expensive process But nonetheless, there's a great deal of pharmacological, like neuropsychological uh, science that already exists in the domains of psychedelic research. And it's only building momentum with each day. So,
0: yes, you know, for sure. And. Uh, I know you've read Pollen's book, How to Change Your Mind, Yeah, and that's an excellent text. I recommend everyone pick it up if you're interested in this topic. I mean, Pollen, in all of the topics he covers, he just does an excellent job at synthesizing personal experience with hard science. And I mean, he's just an excellent writer. And uh, what I thought was really cool, if you remember the portion of the book where he talked about how in a lot of ways, the tripping brain looks very similar to an infant brain and the sort of crosstalk going on. And I thought that was poignant as an example to bring up because you you mentioned how there's a sort of focal point of perception and, you know, we sort of graduate into these wider, I guess, concentric rings of experience. That's how I was understanding that metaphor. And, um, How these compounds can sort of mix and match. And for example, that woman you spoke to who experienced a new kind of synesthesia that was more conducive to everyday living and just functioning better. I wonder how much of that overlaps. Like I I wonder I'm not necessarily saying we go into an infant brain mode. I think that's a gross oversimplification. But I wonder what the overlap. In that is, you know, it's just so hard because even with fMRIs, um, they're not sensitive enough to really understand what's going on at the neuronal level or what agonist really does what. It's more like light brights, and we see activity that we postulate does this and then have to test that in a sort of black box method. And, um, you know, until cognitive science really gets more uh, fine-tuned instruments and we can really, you know, put a microscope, so to speak, on the particular portions of the brain and how they interact, it's it's just going to be this mystery.
1: Yeah. And that's where, you know, I see my role in this as being like a precursor to that evidence-based research. I think that it's really hard for, you know, I think the climate's changing, especially with autistic people. I think like Greta Thunberg, other people like this are creating a safe space for people to feel empowered by neurodiversity and other things. Absolutely. Um, you know, content like what you guys are doing, likewise. But I think it's another level for people who are already like, well, should I come out of this autistic closet simultaneously? Should I reveal like the usage of like, you know, controversial substances? Um, but you know, I'm hearing more and more from persons who've gone to like legal markets to like utilize like substances in retreat settings. And then they're more comfortable talking about these stories. And there's more and more clinical trials where, you know, the trial wasn't specifically about autistic individuals, but someone within that trial was part of that population. So there's We're going to just naturally discover more correlations over time. But, you know, I mean, again, that's where my intention with writing this book, appearing on this podcast, like giving keynote speeches, like everything that's on my website, like all of that is intended to be like a quick, like, hey, like researchers, like if you can speak this, like neuroscience better than I, if you can interpret this better than I, like let's work together, like let's find others. And like that momentum's building, like right now, Working on some folks, um, trying to co-author like some qualitative research, like finding individuals who have experience with psychedelics and autism and taking those experiences and putting them into a more like structured framework that can then be written up as a qualitative study that can then be a precursor to that sort of quantitative medical imaging kind of studying uh, that comes later on the in the line. But, you know, that progress has been made and i just need the help of other people in the fields of research and also individual autistics who have any degree of experience that's like that's what you know i'm i'm i learned that i'm not the first person this that this happened to i learned more so that like i was amongst the few that within this local span of time talked about it in public like People have reached out who are like, yeah, back in 1978, I had this experience and autism wasn't even like a diagnosis in this capacity yet. And then in 2007, I was diagnosed or like there's these like radical stories from people who are like, yeah, I just like we just didn't have as much. I think especially that internal imaging component really makes this like an intelligible conversation to even have and understand any of this. Like we just otherwise we'd just be like asking questionnaires to like and I don't know how much pro like I don't know how much progress we could really make like
0: yeah know. yeah we definitely need our hard science our partners in academia we we need you I I mean I was reading your book and I just felt so many of the epiphanies you felt I'd felt um in in different contexts I mean the first time. I was 18 years old. I was in a really bad place mentally. I mean, it was a lot like what you were experiencing was social isolation and a sense of being othered. And I just didn't know what was going on. I didn't receive a diagnosis by that point, and I was just so depressed. And then I got into meditation, and that made me feel more uh, more empathic ties and more perceptual uh, ties to my everyday life that. I didn't even know were possible, you know? And then some years later, I got my hands on some four ACO DMT, aka synthetic magic mushrooms. Forgive me, Paul Stamets, for uh, stamets rather for referring to them as magic mushrooms. He hates that. Um yeah, the the four ACO, then I'd felt a certain empathetic joy that I'd never experienced in my life, literally living and being among other people, regardless of my past with that person, even people who I thought up to that point I didn't like much at all. I, I just felt this compassion and love for them that I just wanted to be around them. And uh, that was so eye opening for me because, you know, it, again, like, like you say in the book, these things sound so trite. Until you experience them, because it's really a new realm for a lot of
2: us. Yeah, and I had that experience on, on MDMA where my empathy for others just opened up and I, I just realized things like I often forget that when they go home, they actually have a life of their own, often seemed surreal to me in the past. And through the use of these substances, I it gave me another frame of reference, and suddenly I, I did understand certain things, certain social layers that that were previously inaccessible.
0: Yeah, and Aaron for our listeners, please tell us what your subjective experience was on your on your first experience in the woods with, you know, uh classic dose of LSD because I thought that was really cool
1: yeah um, well the the first thing I'll say or, or two quick prefaces one is that um, I cover this experience pretty extensively in the psychedelics today podcast it's also searchable online it, and so I'll kind of tread a little like more brief here and second secondly because it's also written about in the text as well um, but to really kind of focus in on you know the aspects of that first experience that seemed the most kind of resonant especially with like the autistic individual kind of crowd you know it was it began with a a very you know a very almost like cliche experience of uh, this union with like the natural world this just like this sense of connectedness belonging uh, just you know that sort of oneness that's very discussed very heavily in a lot of psychedelic literature Um, but then on the you know some time in to that experience like some number of hours in. I then like walked away from my relatively isolated place in the forest that I was in uh, and I came across an individual. And the metaphor that I draw often is this idea of like when speaking with this person, my sense of their emotional tone or their emotional well-being felt very much similar to the way I might detect like the temperature of a room or like place my hand over like a a fire uh, in the sense that I could I could detect that in more real time uh, and I could work with that and I could use that information, that like sensory information to more intuitively arrive at the next progression in that framework. So there was this odd moment where, you know, here I was with like on the left, uh, you know, it's almost like I had like a split view, like not literally split view, but it's like a, like a gut feeling split view of like. And it was like in my in my mental space, I could remember the roadmap like say hello to this person when they say hello back, then say the next thing like there's that sort of masking element, that scripted element. And so what was bizarre in this experience and all the subsequent experiences was that I could sort of look at these scripts I'd built at the same time that I was having a very like organic and felt and like sensed deeply sensed engagement with the individual across from me. And so there was this, like, bizarre uh, sort of, like, like multi-layered, almost, like, augmented reality, like, experience of, like, oh, like, I'm seeing my normal way I would act. Like, almost in, like, a, I don't know, it's almost like a quantum-y, like, you see, like, the multiple doors you could walk through while you're only walking through one of the doors, you almost kind of like have this sense, like I could be walking through this other door. How would I feel about that? How would I walk through this other door? How would I feel about that? But in these instances, they weren't like literal doors. They were more like, should I ask a follow up question or should I be quiet and listen? Like, it's like, and those kinds of subtle movements were not easy for me as an autistic individual. It was much easier for me to just be like, I have a memorized thing to say now, here I go like so I think that was a big part as far as like the autistic side of that psychedelic experience that was like you know it was mind-blowing to be like wow look at all this like amazing like light and sound and look at all of this like sensational like magic of the natural world but like the very simple magic of like of connecting with like a human being was like oh my god man like i I could easily like work up like yet another like downpouring of tears over that moment because it was, there's nothing, there's nothing I could compare that to man. Like just as like, as like you're like someone walking out from like, if imagine like we're in this like quarantine period now, it's like, imagine going from like quarantine mode to just like a block party outside, like right now, like it's like that sort of like that shift towards just like, wow, look at the humanity, look at the feeling And it was this, you know, humans in general had kind of like, uh, they had almost like kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like kind of like dried up or like frozen into this image of most humans are probably going to lead to trauma. (laughs) Like that was my generalized view, I'm pretty sure. And so like in those moments, I was like, here's a human that's not leading me to trauma, but is like, is is, is a wonderful thing to interact with. And it was like, oh my God. Like I'm not afraid, and also like I'm in love with socializing. (laughs) Like (laughs) I mean, and like what more of a what more of a pivot shift is possible than that? Like Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to me. It's always always will be
0: for real. I I liken it to I guess you know it's not going to map on congruently, but. For people who are having a really hard time, you know, mentalizing what what is that like? Why is this so remarkable? You know, maybe they've always been the sort of people, persons, and they've always had this easy time. Imagine it's like the first time you really fall in love hard. Yeah, absolutely. This is what romance can be, you know. Before that, maybe you had crushes, but there's like that un the ineffable attachment to someone, you know, like I I imagine that epiphany. At least for me, that maps on well to what you're explaining.
1: Yeah, I mean, like again, if you watch those videos of those like Enchroma colorblind glasses, like those are people that are like flipping out and like like weeping to no end about being able to see, like just being able to see color and like seeing color. Like if you can't see color, like. You can't be like, a, you know, you can't be an air pilot, you can't like, you might have confusion in certain spaces, like, there's a a degree of like difficulty that comes with like, you know, not seeing certain subsets of color, but Mm -hmm. like, to be living in a social society of like, where, where, like, that's a whole nother depth of like, enablement in terms of like, wow, I can, I can navigate this massive swath of existence that was just previously a landmine fields or like walking in between like raindrops that always hurt. Like, and like, and it just became like, wow, it's raining. This is nice. I can walk through this. I can navigate this. Like, I I accept this. Like, I I don't know, man, I, I could say it so many different ways, but I mean, I think we've kind of hit so many metaphors with it, but you know, that that's, that's really what spurred it. And that, you know, that was that first experience. And from there, I just explored how I could utilize that state or like enter that state, not only with like the assistance of LSD, but also other like body practices, somatic work, meditation, breath work, like tons of stuff. Like it just became like, I became radically aware that my brain was almost like a marionette. And I had certain abilities to pull certain strings and it never occurred to me. I, Previous to that, I was just like a marionette that was being like kicked about by the world of people and uh, things asked of me, whatever. And then I started to almost like, you know, there's a term in, in psychedelics kind of referred to as like metaprogramming or like I started to like almost like alter the, the, the ways in which I was altering the systems that altered my perceptions. Like all these like layers start to nest but it was navigatable. Like I could understand it. I could like navigate
0: it. It's a view shift. It's like now you know what you didn't have because how could you really conceive what you had if? You never, you know, had a semblance of that experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a matter of, you know, I liken it to the metaphor of it being like a, like fire, like you can use fire to sanitize your water. You can use fire to cook. You can use it to burn down a house. You can use it yeah. to like, you know, burn your own hands. You can use it to seal a wound on your hand. So there's like, there's, but either way, the power of that fire is, is to be respected, is to be navigated intelligently. And again, going back to kind of where we are in the timeline of everything, I'm caught in this gray area right now of it's you it's you can't really there's not a clear path towards becoming a you can't right now. There's one program in the world where you can get a psychedelic assisted therapy uh, license and there's a number of programs in the world where you can get like, you know, an above board license to study these chemicals from a research standpoint. Um, but there are no like guides uh, that are, you know, with the exception of indigenous access rights that have always kind of been protected and rightfully so um, as well as like certain legal markets that have access points as well. Um, There's, there's a, there's a stark uh, absence of knowledgeable experts who can intelligently work with these materials. And I think that that's, that's really sad to me in the sense of how, how, here I am like with something that was very beneficial to me that is so culturally taboo, at least in the US, that it's restricting our ability to come to an understanding. And like, again, going back to that fire analogy, like if, you know, if the first person that like burned their hand on a fire and we were like, let's go lock fire up so that fire can't get out again, like we, like we would be missing out on all of the benefits. And like, I'm sure we weren't we weren't alive like some whatever amount of time ago when people were like learning about fire. But I'm pretty sure a lot of people didn't use fire right at first. Like so. And and, you know, like I had my own subset of challenging experiences that like could have been mitigated with better guidance. And so I I absolutely agree. Like guides are essential. Like legalities are to be concerns. And part of, you know, pursuing some of this research and understanding is to. You know, lift this like this myth that these compounds don't have any medical application because that's just, that just seems bananas to me that these don't have any medicinal usages.
0: Yeah. And Um, just to muddy the waters with yet another metaphor, because for people who have not tried these compounds, first of all, don't just do it willy nilly. These, again, are highly illegal compounds for the most part. And there are a lot of folks who have underlying mental health conditions or, a family history thereof, or various other reasons why you shouldn't take this lightly. I know we've been talking about them in these great terms, and they can be great tools. But like any great tool, they need to be administered carefully and with guidance. You know, I'd never done any of these things alone, and I don't recommend anyone does. And I recommend you stay within the law for your own sake and for everyone around you and Aaron I know you definitely agree on that point yeah
1: and those are and those are complex systems they're political they're there's many socioeconomic there's a ton of stuff happening there and so I'm I'm really trying to I'm really trying to focus my energies on you know proposing ideas rather than like opposing systems that might oppose the exploration I'm trying to just explore I'm just trying to explore irregardless of the controversy of doing that exploration and I think it's very much important i think it's like very critical and this similarly like really pulls at my heartstrings of like when i first it was like last september was the first time i talked in public about this and i was like oh man from here on my name and autism and lsd are going to be like the first page of google for the rest of time here i go and that going from that place where i was like a little bit afraid to being like i'm i'm not afraid because after doing that after getting emails messages from people who are like this happened to me too, or this very similar thing happened to me too, I started to get a sense that if there was like a a sort of critical mass of persons who were like, yes, this really did impact me. And I'd like to talk about that, that that could then be used intelligently, not only to inform the research, but also to create a sense of security amongst those persons who feel like they have a space to go. And a lot of these experiences likewise can be really jarring. So I like, I went ahead and I started to work with some other people and my most, uh, like my current initiative, which is especially fitting given like everyone being in quarantine and everything is, is just, I started up like a every Sunday zoom meeting. Uh, It's just like, you can find info at autistic psychedelic.com and we're just getting people together from all the domains, like research, individuals, persons who are affected, Any like anyone that exists anywhere near to the orbit of the intersection of autism and psychedelics like that's the space that I'm trying to just cultivate with other people so that we can just grow an understanding together and have somewhere for people to go because I still in my message never was and never will be, hey, everyone take these materials like just do that. That's not like that's not the goal here. The goal is to use these again to like help us to triangulate what's happening within autism, what's happening within psychedelics. Like there's, there's a, there's a wealth of research to where we don't even need to administer drugs to grow our understanding of what these drugs do, like based on pre-standing research, like overlapping. And so right now I'm just trying to rapidly network like the autistic experts with the experts in the psychedelic community and do it in such a way that it it, it kind of fosters some intelligent dialogue and frees me from this feeling that, you know, that I'm, I've been trying to like heavy lift, like the whole of like a neuroscience degree that I don't have, like it like just through like Google scholar searches, like I'm, there's better people than I, and I'm trying to bring those people into that same conversation.
0: Yeah. Even looking at the literature from the fifties to sixties, like you mentioned in the book and what, um, well, pretty much everyone who's written on this topic is. Gone back to the, the crazy positive effects that it's had on alcoholics and fighting their addiction. Um, I mean, yeah, let' say that there's no medicinal quality with research of the past and what we're learning now with at Johns Hopkins University and, and NYU and pretty much all these schools throughout europe it's i don't I don't see a, a cogent argument you could really make against it having absolutely no medical efficacy, you know. I guess, fast forward to the Aaron of 2020, Um, how much of what you've learned from your experiences has stuck to what degree have they stuck and have you developed further from that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if I sort of take it on in chunks, like at 23, I was diagnosed with autism spectrum at 27 was my first psychedelic experience. So as I said before, like 23 to 27 was kind of like fumbling through trying to figure it out. I kind of stumbled across this experience at 27. I'm like, wow, that sure is weird. Oh, wow, that sure is repeatable. Wow, OK. And so then I kind of go about my like independent kind of exploration in the background of everything for a number of years. And then last year, 2019, in the fall, I appeared for this group, The Aware Project, and gave a keynote presentation there, kind of threw some research ideas out uh, for anyone who is interested in, in checking those out. Talked there. As far as it like holding from like a personal standpoint, I mean, I still think ultimately that my the depth of sensation, the intensity, that sort of moving from it being a fire hose of information to being like an ocean of information to look out at, I think that that, that sort of oceanic feeling is still much more readily accessible through the intentional... Uh, use of either psychedelics or psychedelic like body practices, like polytropic breathwork, meditation, Mm -hmm. even just like, you know, dietary changes, sleep changes. Like I know for myself, I know what what kind of strings I can pull on that, like sort of marionette of the mind, so to speak. And so, you know, I don't think it's as simple as I say on like page one of the book, like it's not as simple as like taking an antibiotic to get well. It's not a cure. It's like none of those things really apply here. It's like, I again, that contact lens analogy, it's like I spent more time with the contact lens like in my receptors. So I was able to learn more within that like clarity space. And so I just naturally in the same way, if you like went and lived in another culture for a, enough time, you'd start to like behave like that culture. I think I started to sort of bring about more of my extroverted tendencies over time That's always, and I I found more joy in some extroverted tendencies, but at the same time, I found a lot of joy in introverted tendencies too. Like with this whole quarantine happening at this moment, it's like I feel pretty well prepared. (laughs) Like I, I like I lived this way for a long time in my life. Like, uh, and you know, I, I, I I similarly, like, I miss like large social gatherings because I learned how to really. not only like how to like embrace those large social settings but also how to like find my place within them too like i learned that like sometimes if i'm at like a large dinner party it's okay to like be like hey would you one or two people mind like stepping into this other room with me i'd really like to talk with you in a smaller setting like like doing those small steps that i didn't think to do before i was just like this is a dinner party i can't dinner party and like (laughs) like by finding these like adaptive approaches i feel just more you know maybe that's just natural like wisdom that comes with youth but it's also very intentionally like looking repeatedly back at like learning a lot about autism learning a lot about psychedelics and just reflecting a lot about you know the what yielded positive and negative results and so like it's it's always a journey man we're always all like growing like that but so it's, it's it, I, I hesitate to say like, oh, this like stuck with me, because I think there's almost like a utility in like what doesn't get stuck to us to allow us to kind of evolve over time. Um, but the the comfort engendered, even from that, like first experience, I think is like always recallable. I think even in this, if you were to like replay this interview back, if you like rewind back to the point, point when I first started to talk about just that first kind of deeply empathetic experience like, I'm always going to get like choked up about that. Like, it's always going to be like just so meaningful to me, man. Like, always. And, and so, like, that's the fact that that's like recallable. I think that'll like never leave me. That strength. Like, there, people are studying psychedelics as a form of palliative care, like end of life care. And I think that there's a certain sort of like you tap into a certain kind of awareness that you can, that can just be applied in so many different domains that it's you know again like yes absolutely yes be safe yes be educated yes grow all these understandings but like i would have I would just like i it's i've said it so many different ways but like for me like psychedelics the psychedelic experience is like it was quite literally life-saving and it's 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 for me it's my life's work it's the most important thing that i'm aware of in like the whole of my existence
0: right now so it sounds to me like a lot of these Struggles with depression. Um, I, I imagine they haven't evaporated. I don't know if it evaporates for anyone really, but it sounds like they're significantly better. Like you just sound so much better. I mean, I mean, you can hear the energy in your voice when you talk about how excited you are about this topic. You know.
1: Yeah, and there's definitely still an ease and a comfort in talking about. You know, like. My- special interest of psychedelics and autism like i'm a lot more comfortable talking about things i know about than i am like trying to necessarily like navigate the back and forth like i'm still always learning that sort of like you know that that interviewer part of me is always still trying to grow and get better um that sort of like in-person socializing presence i'm always trying to get better and better but similarly kind of going back to that like i place myself into intentional settings like I worked at like a a youth travel hostel, like for a number of years. And by virtue of doing that, I gave myself like a thousand opportunities to like have a first conversation with someone. I I placed myself like into like the trial by fire mode of like, how do I people? How do I people? Like, and I failed a lot. But I think going back to what Martin said uh, some time ago, it's like uh, by just being able to get to the place where you can like you know if you if you don't go to the gym how do you get stronger if you don't leave your room how do you get more social like and so I found a reason to leave my room and then I found and then I created structures and put them in place to where I could like very much engage with people and very much try to like learn how to and it wasn't because I was trying to like you know uh, prove that I was like not broken it was because I found a genuine joy in connecting with people that wasn't present really in my younger years like I liked and when I was a kid I liked when other people liked what I liked maybe and that was about it like but then I became like interested in other people's interests and like what that means to them and and I don't know tons of stuff like it just the complexity of human humans just became like really wonderful to me
2: I also wonder if you looked into how um, LSD influences alexithymia, because it, it seems you've overcome quite a lot of alexithymic barriers due to those insights garnered by um, LSD. This maybe
1: isn't directly
2: related to that question. There
1: is, for, as far as I've looked and searched online, there's a, there's a specific neuroscience researcher out of Switzerland. Uh, her name is Dr. Katrin Pruller. And she has a podcast appearance or two out there from her most recent work, where they used uh, hallucinogens and the application of social and cognitive disorders. Um, so there is there is above board research looking at these phenomenons. As far as my subjective experience, like I think I would liken it to the notion that you know, in the initial wave of really kind of intense or like higher dose sessions with psychedelics, uh, it seemed like I was kind of removing the blockages of those traumas in like the mid in like the mid to later phase of the explorations I was sort of like working with those blocks removed but with like that kind of like subtler sensitivity like that sort of hazmat suit mode kind of came in where I was like Mm. okay it's safe to go into this dinner party now and then like while I'm here I can like kind of navigate this and I can understand this there's a growth point there but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, that's why uh, like psychedelic assisted, like psychotherapy is so popular and prominent and showing to be very effective because the net result is that if you ask someone a question about how do they feel about something and their, their, in, their instinctive reaction is, I don't want to think about that. Like mo- there's a lot of people that spend their like every day of their life, their whole life is just, I don't want to think about that. And then like, And, like, that's, like, a defense mechanism against, like, being completely, like, debilitated by, like, these, like, emotional memories, traumatic memories. And so when, like, psychedelics kind of, like, hold your hand in that way, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, the same thing is possible, like, do a guided meditation, do, like, a deep breathing exercise, do anything, anything that kind of, like, lowers, like, the amount of, like, cortisol surging through, like, that'll decrease that, like, amygdala fear response and just, like, open you up to being able You know, it's like when you make, when you befriend the thing that terrifies you, you can start to work with it. And I think that for me, pretty much like the, like a good portion of like the extroverted experience of being a human was pretty terrifying to me for a number of years. And now, even if I'm in a situation where it's like, ah, I sure am overwhelmed. I know why, like, it's like, I don't know, if you if you just like heard a ticking noise in the background, you might go crazy. But if you're like, oh, that ticking noise is uh, my predisposition to like having some sensitivity to this other thing. Then you're like, OK, cool. Well, now I'll change environments then. like yeah. But before then, it was like invisible, like invisible, whatever, just fatiguing me in the background. But once that invisible whatever became known, then I could make intelligent ad- changes and adaptations to my environment. To the point to where now i'm just like oh okay i'm gonna like just put on like these like uh noise canceling headphones even though it seems socially weird i'm gonna do it because i'll get socially weirder if i don't put these headphones on <laughs> like you know like accepting those adaptations as like integral in my process became just as essential and i and i think you know if i could speak to my much younger self I would just be like, dude, just be weird. Because like, every attempt I ever made at not being weird made me the weirdest person ever, man. Like, I don't know how I don't know how else to put it other than that. Like, and I think that's where the work you guys are doing with this whole like embrace idea, I think is really critical. Because I could have saved myself a lot of hardship if I would have just like, figured out how to accept any and all of these like things. But it took, a long, it took a long walk around my brain and the world to figure out a lot of these
2: things. Yeah, which, which is also why we started Embrace SD, because for many years I, I was quite depressed and was very expressive of my anxiety and such. And, and I feel that focus on my negative experience um, influenced me further. Like it, it's, it's sort of a feedback loop. You're so focused on your negative experience that that you experience negativity more readily, it almost seems. And once I started looking at my life in a more positive light, my life also became more positive.
0: Yeah. I think for everyone out there listening, regardless of what's going on under the hood, so to speak, this is pertinent for everyone. We should all love ourselves. We all should have some love for ourselves. I mean, it's just we're us, you know, we're, you're you, I'm me. You're going to live as yourself your whole life. So you may as well enjoy the ride, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that's, I think that's where uh, an analogy that I've drawn repeatedly again because a lot of this internal stuff we can only really get at kind of metaphorically but there's this idea of like if i wrote the words like live music on a piece of paper and like slid it to you you'd be like that's cool but like if i brought a whole band to like just start playing amplified music in front of you you'd be like whoa that's like that's a real whoa okay like it's just it's 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 an experience it's a direct experience that we're trying to articulate and sometimes it's hard uh to do that with just words and language Uh, it's just difficult
0: yeah I've had a similar experience um, after really understanding my autism and how it manifests in me personally, because as you could hear throughout this conversation, it manifests for all of us so uniquely. And it just felt like I had a tint or a visor my whole life and I removed it. And it's like, wow, this is a really pretty place. I kind of like this new look, you know, and that's... uh, you know, again, it sounds trite, but it's extraordinary. And um, <laughs> I think you'll find that most things that are really extraordinary sound rather trite when you boil it down to its yeah. most uh, yeah. fundamental point. Yeah.
2: I've also been wondering, um, compounds like LSD are known to be quite conducive to self-insights. However, it it does seem to be dependent on on your own willingness to explore your past and your intellect as well. So it it seems people assume that they will get these insights just on account of of using the drug and then feel like they don't have to make any effort. I'm wondering what your idea is about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that goes back to a really classical idea that... uh a couple other doctors way back when, you know, 50s, 60s times, they, they referred to that as mostly like set and setting of, you know, what's the mindset of the individual taking this material and what's the setting that they're in. Initially, they were taking them in very like highly clinical, like white-walled rooms with like buzzing lights. And, and I think that that, again, that there's this like odd overlap of like being an autistic person. There's like this odd I have this odd familiarity with like what environmental factors are going to throw me off in certain capacities. And so kind of engineering that environment was really critical. Like most often it was like being in like outdoor settings, being with like, you know, just emphasizing that comfortable comfortability, like minimizing the amount of like external problems I had to solve or like, you know, other, you know, if I was really trying to, you know, if I was trying to connect socially, I would take like a certain dosage that was appropriate for that encounter because you know if you're going to a social function you might not want to like close your eyes and suddenly have like very intense like uh, like visualizations of like a I don't know like an astral projection of sorts or something like there's a certain like utility mm-hmm. in that same way it's like are we using the fire to like warm up water for tea or are we using the fire to like you know, propel a rocket, like, what are we doing in this application, in this application? Um, But, you know, I I think that's where there's a number of uh, of people out there who've written extensively, not necessarily for autistic individuals, but just for individuals at large, as far as like preparation, um, things like that. And everyone's always ultimately, you know, writing from their experiences. There's some degree of collective knowledge on the subject that's building over time. Um, as far as you know like like re- subjective reports of what's successful for myself like just you know the same way I'd go about my everyday life like I me myself like I listen to and create like very like soothing like low frequency like almost like binaural kind of music for myself so that when I'm on a subway train and I have to think or do something I can like throw that music on And I can like almost create like an auditory safe zone for myself or like simultaneously in certain settings. Like I'll just put on like noise cancellation fully or like an ear defender kind of device. Um, Those kinds of things were helpful to have not only like with psychedelics, but just in my day to day life. Like there's there's a lot of overlaps when you're talking about these like kind of fluctuations and sensitivity. These there's like an infinite number of tools you can kind of reach towards that are going to be really assistive um, you know, like lighting and and temperature, like textures, like anything that really engenders that comfort. I think as we feel physically comfortable, with that feeling overlaps into our comfortability to explore something, you know, like if you're if you're in the middle of like a frigid, like Arctic setting, you're probably not gonna like stop to think about what's important to your heart. You're just gonna try to survive. And so like removing those things that trigger that fight or flight response. I think is really helpful not only in my day-to-day life but most especially in psychedelic settings like you know you, you should like if you're trying to explore how to like you know approach like social love things like this like you ought to be in an environment in an environment and in a mindset where you feel like loved and supported and, and and that so i think that's where that's where it's important there um yeah and i could talk about that forever but i'll, I'll pause there
2: yeah, definitely, because many environmental factors are are amplified during um, LSD experience. So the background, the environment in which you do the drugs are are quite important. Yeah,
1: and that's where you know there there are some changes. The the most closest resembling study we have just yet is a study that um Dr. Alicia Danforth did with uh it was with uh individuals with MDMA uh who are trying to work through social anxieties uh, but those studies worked in such a way that you know typical psychedelic assisted therapies work with like eye blinds and music and more of like inner journeying for myself I found just because of my own you know the avenues I was trying to explore I found a utility in Having my eyes open to the world of stimulus, to the world of people's faces, having my ears open to the world of people's expressions, like I found that utility. So in those MDMA and social anxiety studies, they took a slightly different approach. And from that, like they were able to kind of get a little closer to what I have in my mind as far as an envisionment of what uh psychedelic assisted like kind of therapy could be for autistic individuals or social or cognitive kind of processing. And You know, whether that looks and this is like a topic for like another 7000 episodes, but it's like whether that resembles kind of like conventional like ABA and supplement with like a medication or whether it's more like something subtler. Like I lean more towards like the notion that there might eventually be like a, a psychedelic assisted therapy center for autistics who can go with people they already know and trust and have these sort of like social connective experiences like MDMA was used for a number of years as a as a lubricant for couples therapy um and i think that you could find similar results not only with MDMA similarly within autistics as they're exploring now but also psilocybin and lsc um just as a means of i think that there's for me myself like even now like i've you know i've years of experience in this space if you were like if you were to invite me to one of those like group retreats i might be like well, i don't know like i don't know if i want to be With like a group of like so many strangers and be so open right then and there like maybe the part like the parts of me that are afraid of that maybe that's actually gonna end up being something to work through and it'll be rewarding like i've heard from people who have gone to retreats who are autistics who are like man i really didn't want to and i went and i left and i was like wow i really am connected to all these people and i feel really good doing that like but it's still, I think that sets, uh, for autistics, I think it sets us up for more of a challenge than we maybe need to expose ourselves to, most especially if we're in like a first kind of experience or like if we're like kind of psychedelically naive or something. I think that those first initial experiences for any person of any predisposition requires a great deal of like handholding and guidance. But I think it also requires a very specific setting and that setting doesn't just include, like, what's the lighting? What's the temperature? Is it inside or outside? It also includes, like, who are the other individuals? What are the energies of the other individuals that are present? You know, it's it's everything. Um, and so, you know, you're going to, you know, I think it's my hope, similarly, to gather these kind of qualitative knowledge bases to work towards a point where we can support, like, psychedelic-assisted therapy for autistic individuals seeking to do some degree of social learning. I mean I'm I'm the living embodiment of a successful exploration in that regard and so I have an easy time being like yes I would like this to be available for other people because the fact that it was available for me has made me who I am and it's wonderful that I was able to do that it's an exceptional place of privilege that I occupy that I was able to do that that I was able to find materials that were like what like that were clean to utilize that were are trusting like in an unregulated market that like just anything any number of factors i mean ex- i'm exceptionally lucky to be able to even have the chance to have done the work i've done and i want like with the very fa- like fiber fabric of my being i want that to be a possibility for other like consenting adults who are interested in exploring uh, and doing uh, such work um i think that it's it's it really it I don't know because again since September since being more out there with this story it's just like it was it started as like a trickle of like an email every few days and then an email like you know a couple of emails in a day and now it's just like it's so consistent the stories that I hear back from people and and the main reason why it's not like a more broadly talked about subject is just because of the the legal the legal landscape of it all it's a very scary space like not not everyone wants to be public with it so I'm kind of taking on a a space with it and, and creating this like psychedelic autistic meetup kind of group to try to foster that conversation. And, you know, even if it, even if individuals such as myself just continue to be kind of amplifiers for other people's anonymous stories, we're still growing our collective understanding. We're still working towards that goal. And I just, I wouldn't feel so like passionate about this if I hadn't tried so many other kinds of solutions also, and I think that most especially to like autistic individuals and their caretakers, it's like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of points at which is just like really exhausting. And it can be really alluring to think like this will be such a magical solution. And I think I always have to like kind of cushion that too when I talk with people about this and say like, look, like it was helpful to me, but it took a lot of work. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of resources. It took a lot of energy to still work through this stuff. And I'm still working through this stuff. It's just, it was helpful in some regard. And so I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to raise it up to a point of awareness to where that conversation can unfold. And that's where I'm at now. And I'm just, I'm optimistic. I've gotten more and more support from like working professionals, medical students, people who are in positions to actually like make this kind of exploration, like very specifically like and own it for themselves. And that's awesome. it gives me the ability to like relax back from like trying to become a scientist and a writer and a blah 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 like now i'm just I'm a gatherer of stories, and I'm trying to just kind of transition to like a community builder of sorts and and that's where I'm at right now
0: that is amazing and it's beautiful and uh we're coming up on an hour and a half now, and so I want to give Aaron the opportunity to tell us where people can find you, where to keep up and just plug yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mentioned it a few times throughout, um, but the website is autismonacid.com. Uh, and on that website, autismonacid.com, there is a link to the Amazon link, uh, for the book. You can purchase that there. All of the profits made from the book go to the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, as well as the Hefter Institute. They're both nonprofit psychedelic research institutes that, MAPS is currently pursuing the MDMA and social anxiety track. after Institute is responsible for just a number of really quality, like just kind of basic foundational understandings of the pharmacological effects. Um, but those are two research organizations supported through the purchasing of the paperback. There's also a fully free, uh, the entire book is available as a free PDF on my website, autismonacid.com. So the whole book is there and it exists as a Google Doc. So I've gotten people like leaving comments within the Google Doc. Like that's a growing conversation over and over. Um, So autismonacid.com, that's like the super most important. And the other thing I really want to plug because it's just in like, it's here we are in quarantine mode and like we're in our nascent phases, Um, but we're meeting every Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern and whatever other time in the world there is that people might be listening Um, And that's all available. If you go to autisticpsychedelic.com, we got all the information about that. Um, And I'll link between the two sites as well. So either of those are going to kind of take you to the same place. But I'm really kind of transitioning now that the book is out there. I can kind of passively point people towards that. But like my active work right now is happening with autistic psychedelic right now. uh, Because that's just that's where everything is for me and where I'm trying to direct other people's attention as well.
0: Excellent. And for everyone who wants to follow Aaron on Twitter, it's at autism on acid, no spaces, no hyphens, no underscores, all one word. And the study that Aaron mentioned uh, earlier, the MDMA, uh, the study with MDMA and its effects on social anxiety scores in autistic people um, is a maps. I don't know if it's maps funded, but definitely maps associated study. And we wrote an article on it. Uh, November 20th called MDMA Against Social Anxiety. Uh, Feel free to visit our blog to read more on that. We have links to the direct study. And Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. It's been elucidating to hear your experience and thank you for what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys so much too. I mean, I've learned a lot from your guys' content and the way you guys have really kind of packaged it to be kind of really readily understood and, and shareable in that. And I really, I thank you guys so much. And Yeah, I mean, even before we had this conversation rolling, I didn't think we'd get to some of the spaces we got to, but man, yeah, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful, I really am.